welcome to the Strong Men Podcast. So many of us men have got it wrong. In our attempts to be strong, we end up fragile, fake and weak. Our current understanding of what it means to be a strong man is warped. This misunderstanding almost led to my suicide and it continues to contribute towards the high suicide rate seen in men. That's why the Strong Men Podcast is on a mission. A mission to redefine the strong man to help men grasp true strength and work towards it. Not just to keep them on the planet a little longer, but to help them thrive. Well, 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 look who's back for more of the Strong Men podcast. They heard the first episode and they just can't get enough. It was a bit of a showstopper, I suppose. So yeah, it's only natural that you're back for more. But you are very welcome here and I'm delighted you're back to listen to another episode. This is just the second episode, so there's way more in store this season. This is the first season of many, and we have 10 episodes lined up. As I was saying, kicked it off with definitely the highlight, the the number one episode of all, with the best guest possible. That's right, it was a solo episode done by myself. So, if you've not checked that one out yet, what are you waiting for? Go and have a listen. It'll give you a little bit of background on the podcast and the group, the Strongman group, and also a little on myself and my story and why I do what I do at the end of the day. Now, this is the first episode with a guest interview. And this is what's going to be, this is basically how it's going to go down from now on throughout the rest of the season. Might throw in a couple of bonus episodes if I've got the time, but we'll see. Uh, those bonus episodes will just be by myself, but the the scheduled episodes are with guests, and these guests are going to come on and talk to you a little bit about a given topic. Now, this week, we have Callum Stronach joining us. Now, I don't know Callum, or I didn't know Callum personally at all before this interview, and that's actually worked in my favour. He is indeed the perfect first guest. Because I didn't really know him, other than a connection on Instagram, it meant that our conversation was really authentic. I was invested in getting to understand him and his story, and also the amount of knowledge that he has is actually scary. You know, for me, I am very invested in mental health causes and I've got some knowledge around eating disorders and disordered eating behaviours, but this guy is just on another level, honestly. Now, you might be thinking, Chris, I don't have an eating disorder, I don't struggle with disordered eating behaviours, and yes, there is a difference between the two. We'll discuss that in the interview. But I promise you, I promise you, you will get a lot from this interview. The amount of insight Callum is about to bring to your listening ears will go a long way when it comes to improving both your physical and mental strength. So, enough from me, let's get to the interview. Before playing today's interview, just a quick content warning that today's conversation does include references to suicide. Okay, so today we have Callum. Now, Callum, the first question I wanted to ask you is about your surname. So, Callum Stronach. Now, that's a Scottish surname, isn't it? 100%. Yeah, it's um, both my uh, parents are, although my dad's not from Scotland, all my grandparents are pretty much from Scotland and either from uh, Greenock 
uh, on my dad's side and then my mum's family are all based in Paisley, which we don't massively shout about, but it's, uh, <laughs> but that's where, yeah, that's where I'm from. Cool, cool. But you're not, um, you're not settled in Scotland. Where are, where are you at the moment? Yeah, I'm, uh, I've grew, always grew up in Wales and whilst being slightly nomadic um, and kind of traveling with, for work ventures and, and stuff like that kind of re re-migrated back home like I think many people did during the kind of the pandemic and you fall in love with what the particularly uh, the particularly the Celtic nations I guess they have to offer in terms of countryside and peace and uh, a bit more quirkiness than what you would get in maybe some of the like London and and things like that where I I did uh, live in previously for sure for sure that's awesome um so yeah for everyone who is well firstly new to the podcast this is the first interview that i'm doing as uh part of the, the strong men podcast and i'm delighted to have callum on um i actually this is the first time i've really chatted to you callum i uh, i've connected with you on instagram um but yeah it's great to meet you and thank you so much for joining me today i was just wondering if you could start off by obviously we've reflected a wee bit on uh, your surname and where you where you stay and that sort of thing but could you give a very brief overview to the listeners uh, just about yourself and, and what you do yeah 100 percent. so i suppose starting in the present day so um, I'm a nutritionist that specializes in eating disorders. So I actually work through as I'm qualified as a nutritionist, but then very much work through a therapeutic lens. Um, so have a, a like a psychology degree and, and kind of accredited um, through all of that and help people with... I mean, the main four are a kind of binge eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, and orthorexia, which is becoming more and more prominent today. Um, and that is encompassed with private work, just with members of the general public. And then I work um, from previous work in nutrition. I've, I've kind of historically worked in performance sport, um, and so still over the past couple of years have worked with and still do work with um, certain sporting national governing bodies. Um, yes, with an element of um, performance nutrition slightly, but it's I more work with athletes who may begin to display patterns of disordered eating Um and that can be anything from guilt around food, high levels of food preoccupation in their mind um, through to actual disordered eating patterns, binging and over-consuming and, or even high levels of restriction and desire to control, et cetera, et cetera. For my career, I say, is essentially a journey of trying to solve my own problems. I myself had an eating disorder probably about 10 years ago now. And I almost like it's navigated my decisions around my career essentially and I, I think that's true for many people I guess but um, so if I'm a, a kind of a 16 year old um, boy who's a bit kind of like dismayed with his body image and um, overweight and all the rest of it it's a problem that I look to solve and I solve that by going to the gym and I start to have some form of, of success and then I'm like but it still doesn't feel like I've got control in inverted commas and so i go and do a degree in sport and exercise science and then and then it's good and actually if i'm being honest like around that time 
um, some of my eating disorder habits really started to evolve. And so, you know what, to solve that, I then go and um, get a master's in nutrition. And then some things still not right. And so that took me on my own kind of, I suppose, beginning of therapy journey. And then obviously you, you do the therapy as part of a, as, as, as someone who is in, like consuming it, so to speak. And then as well as that, um, it's something that um, I then want to almost understand it myself, I guess. So it's almost been a journey of trying to solve my own problems. Um, and, and that's where, it, where I am today, essentially. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, that's, I mean, a, a very quick insight into yourself. So in the Strongman podcast, the whole idea is to get men on to talk a little bit about their own stories and experiences. Because from my perspective, there's so much power in sharing your own story. That was certainly the case for me when I was struggling a lot with, with my mental health. One of the biggest things that helped me start on that road to recovery was becoming more open and telling people about my story. And actually in time, the more I opened up, the easier it became. I also began to realize that it helps other people too. So people who are in a similar situation, perhaps to, to one that I was, was in not too long ago, for them, they can relate to a lot of the stuff that I, I, I mentioned in my story. So that's a big emphasis in the, the, uh, the guest interviews. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your own personal experience with mental health challenges. You were talking in particular about eating disorders. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit of that with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people think that um, they hear the word eating disorder and they think food, obviously, naturally, and and, and even disordered eating and, and stuff like that, obviously think food, but the reality is it's never about food. Like eating disorders specifically, and I suppose that's what differs them from disordered eating, is that they are a mental illness. So yeah, in terms of like the inception of having an eating disorder it is these kind of ideas of of having a mental illness which is driven from beliefs about oneself and it's looking at a big big part of my own experience and obviously i speak about this having a psychology training done a fuck ton of sorry for swearing but a, a load of a load of um uh, therapy myself and um, just general patterns of reflection and so I understand its inception and so the first point is that it's never really about food and what it does come about that what it is about then is looking at our own patterns of self-worth our own patterns of the emotional dysregulation and a big, big part of it is of what I've explored is looking, okay, well, what have I learned here? What have I learned over time? What are the systems that exist within society? What are the systems that exist within, um, within my family environment, et cetera, et cetera, that contribute to essentially a feeling of, of, of self, a lack of self-worth, a lack of belonging. And these can be things like trauma. But when I say trauma, trauma can be, trauma is just too much, too fast, too soon. And 
it doesn't have to be the things that we traditionally think as trauma. We think of like abuse and um, physically, emotionally, sexually. Uh, we think of men going to war and all of this kind of stuff. Whereas the reality is it can just be too much, too fast, too soon. So for me, like I'm the eldest of eldest child of two younger brothers. And I was four years old when my youngest brother comes along. And so my mum's got three kids under the age of four. My dad is present, but worked away from time to time. So not physically present as an example. And then my mum is handling three boys. I go to school for six hours a day. And so all of this, if you think about, okay, what does that little boy, what does he learn? And that little boy learns that his needs come last. Not through any fault, like the reality is you've got two younger brothers who are potatoes, who can't fend for themselves and all the rest of it, whereas I'm the most independent. And so what, what then that becomes is the beginning of my needs come last. And then we go and look at some other situations like my parents' divorce. I, I then, because of that, I then, even just at 12 years old, fall into like protector narratives and all of these stem the question stem from the question of like okay who did i have to be to essentially obtain love and so i then as as an example and this will lead me to answering your question i then learned to obtain love even at 4 years old i just kind of had to metaphorically just stand in the corner I just had to keep my head down. And if I did, like my family environment, particularly at that age, was was good. And so, but then what that promotes is then certain patterns of dis emotional dysregulation. Like, because if I'm going to do that, I can't be angry. If I'm going to do that, I can't express my needs. And thinking about these kind of ideas, then it can lead to... Like I'm a massively avoidant attachment style, like, uh, like just massively because I don't. I, it's it's almost like an effort to communicate my needs. So the easiest thing for me to do is just withdraw, like a little boy just standing in the corner, just waiting for him to be loved. And then, if you think about these patterns around, I have to be, um, I have to be a provider to be loved. I have to be. Uh, like stable and put together because um, so that my mum can have the energy to look after my brothers. So that means I then reject the parts of me that aren't stable. So when the parts of me, like the parts of me that are overwhelmed or the parts of me that what I know now are just my humanity, essentially, the parts of me that get anxious or uncertain about situations. I'm like, I can't express this. Plus the societal narrative of men must be strong and all the rest of it. It just compounds that. I can't express this, so I need to hide it. And I need to not let that out. And so because there's this visceral like emotion or with that, then I would just be like, okay, I need to, I need to escape this horrendous feeling that I'm feeling in my body. And I would just either control food ridiculously or I would um, I would binge. And the, the inception of that was just a lot of hiding. It was a lot of depression. Because I learned that in order for me to be lovable, I had to be strong or maybe not strong is not the word I would use, but I suppose it's encompassed in that, but a provider, a caretaker, 
uh, an achiever. And then because I then rejected the parts of me that were that almost deemed them unlovable, and those parts were just coming up to the surface more and more and more, like, because like, it's like a balloon, right? You're just trying to push it under a water and it just keeps trying to rise up. It just caused me to be, because I didn't want you to see that part of me. And so it just comes from this place where I would just retreat more and more and more. Um, and then, like I say, the isolation and, and depression and not vocalizing these things. And um, yeah, and then it led to, particularly at, at its worst, it led to, like I say, severe isolation, which ultimately led to um, a suicide attempt, essentially. Um, which I don't really speak about that much because a part of it is like, a part of like in the beginning it was just a sense of oh that was just a bad day at the office you know and a part of the work that I've done in the past six months or so has actually been going oh, actually like that's really fucked up I believed that dying would protect the parts of me that were lovable so that seemed like the only option to protect the love that I had for me to be like this part because like, don't get me wrong, like, I was, like, from the outside, like, I had it all, you know? And the way in which I attempted to do it was to try and trap myself in a tide um, in a local estuary. And I stood there for fucking two hours at, like, midnight. And um, for whatever reason, it didn't happen and I didn't do it. Um, and kind of walked home at one o'clock in the morning and just was like, okay, that's not really normal and, and sought a bit of help from there. But it wasn't within my family. It wasn't mm. within my friendship group. Like I just went and sorted it out. So the problem, like the, the challenges still persisted from there. Um, but ultimately, like I say, that's why I precursor a lot of the story with love and looking at what we learn and who have I learned to be? Because so many, particularly men, learn that they are only deserving of love if they are achieving. So who did you have to be to be like to find a sense of belonging? Who did you have to be? And then these dictate like how we want our body to be and how we want to show up in the gym and how we want to show up in relationships, but then can also be the contribution of our own, own demise. I mean, there's so much in, in that. And I mean, thanks so much for sharing it because it, it's it, there's a lot of heavy 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 stuff in there the one thing that really stands out for me and, and this is definitely true for me and it was something that i've only come to realize very recently through again as you mentioned therapy is that so much of it does come back to your childhood and it's not necessarily the case that there was anything you know it wasn't that the parents were particularly nasty or you know had bad intentions or anything like that but there are some things that happen in childhood almost naturally um, to a certain degree that that do contribute to kind of molding who you are to a degree and, and perhaps the things that you struggle with as you grow up into adult life so yeah that's that certainly resonated a lot with me and uh i think as well the the chat about suicide i know you're saying it's not something that you you really talk about a lot 
and I think, but I think it is such a, an important thing to talk about. It's something I, I mentioned in the podcast in the intro is that it's the biggest killer of men under the age of forty-five. And mm. again, if we tie that into the power of sharing stories, I think the more that we talk about it, and the more that it becomes almost acceptable i don't really like using that word but at the moment it's almost like it's it is unacceptable to talk about but the more that we do talk about it as men i think the more comfortable men will be more to to talk when they are in that dark place where they do feel like i'm unlovable and you know life would be better for for others and maybe even myself if i wasn't here anymore if that makes sense um so yeah i do i really do appreciate that and and i think it's awesome that uh, we can have conversations like that. Uh, I think it, it can certainly go a long way. I just wanted to briefly ask about eating disorders because I do feel like there are a number of misunderstandings when it comes to, firstly, like a difference between eating disorders and disordered eating. So, for example, not everyone who's got disordered eating behaviours has an eating disorder. So how does that all work? And also, the there must be some issues and i think i've seen this reflected in your posts on instagram when it comes to men in particular eating disorders are often associated with with women so was that a barrier for you and if so like how do you overcome that 100 percent. yeah there is um into particularly speaking to the spit the piece around men like it took me ages to wreck it to just acknowledge that i had a a problem and I like I did so many things to try and like um almost like fix the problem so to speak um and you fix that through uh, well, I'll find this new training program I'll find this new means of dieting or this different way of controlling my food and, and stuff like that and the reality is is that when we think of eating disorders we think of um like a, a a young white girl essentially and that's that's the the essentially the narrative that that comes out and the difference i suppose the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating is i suppose a, a certain amount of set criteria um underneath the disordered eating are just there is um some kind of intention to it but a lot of eating disorders are wrapped up in a, a shed load of fear. And within that, that then contributes to a, a set amount of criteria that um, allows us to then diagnose these as um, eating disorders versus disordered eating. And usually this fear comes around our own ability to trust ourselves or a fear about not belonging and a lovableness. And that can manifest in a fear of weight gain or a really strong obsession with to be a certain a certain way. And the reality is like, um, if you are feeling that sense of like extreme hypervigilant, extreme levels of urgency, then, um, or to be a, or a strong desire to be a certain way or a strong fear of, of even just putting weight on, then, it's it's going to be underpinned by something like um if i put on weight then i am less lovable and so then that's why eating disorders are so complex is because we have to like i say yes we have to talk about food to a point but actually we need to talk about like our ability to um emotionally regulate and um 
and the patterns that we've learned, like a, a quite a common one is that within eating disorders, people have a dysfunctional re relationship with anger, as an example, whereas anger is the most, is one of the most healthiest emotions in its healthiest expression. Anger is a derivative of love because anger says I matter. And we think of anger generally as like rage. And if you look at an unhealthy anger and rage and unhealthy anger are that of, or like if you look at the physiology behind them, they are that of like, they mimic that of a panic attack where we feel really out of control and all the rest of it. Whereas actually anger in its healthiest expression just says, I matter, it's boundaries, it's no, it can be firm, yes, but it's calm it's strong it's can it's it's relaxed and um and so there there are these wider conversations around emotion like emotional skill set that we are lacking which contribute to that whereas disordered eating can be perpetuated for a number of different reasons they can be perpetuated because of sometimes just a lack of education, you know, sometimes because of, uh, like I say, certain buying into certain societal narratives, um, or not holding up a, a lens to like, if we become, if we find success in say tracking, then it can almost like just perpetuate a disconnect from our body and our ability to find safety for ourselves, as I kind of alluded to. And it's just, like a, almost like a way in which we can get lost. Maybe we disordered eating could just fill a void of like thinking about like a new mother as an example. Uh, this is a client that I had. And um, the reality is her disordered eating patterns just showed themselves because of some unmet needs. Because she was a new mum, a bit overwhelmed by it, but then had gone from this quite vibrant lifestyle of being busy and having all of this community to being her having her life controlled by this thing. And so the reality is those overeating episodes were just the one source of fun that she had in a day. And so they were just meeting these needs of joy and or connection or, or soothing potentially. And so it's just like, Oh, actually all we need to do is just highlight what these disordered patterns are achieving and start to, facilitate that so can we look at facilitating joy through food in other ways through creative outlets can we look at um can we look at um facilitating that in um through other ways outside of food and that's part of the 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 lens to hold up particularly for men like it's a hard thing to do because as men we're troll told to problem solve we're told to uh, fix and the majority of us, not, I don't want to speak for all men, but like a strong proportion of men are, are shit at listening. And that includes to themselves as well. Um, and so the majority of, of men, particularly if we're saying, well, actually, when you, th you find yourself overeating at night, just stop and listen just to yourself. Like, just listen. Like, what's going on for you in that moment? And bring some curiosity to that point. But as almost as men, we're just like, nope, like I want to fix it. And so I'm going to go fix it by removing these foods from the cupboards or I'm going to go and fix it by finding a new goal or I'm going to fix it by staying busy, et cetera, et cetera. The answer to disordered eating and eating disorders in many ways is to slow down. That doesn't mean not work hard. Doesn't mean not go and 
um, strive uh, for other things, but just to listen and just to be like, okay, what are your needs? Like how many men be like, what? I have needs? <laughs> yes, you have needs and you're meeting them. So start to think about them. Like there's a reason why there's only 25% of, of people who have eating disorders are men because we're not able to, some of us have these struggles, but just don't connect with them you know for sure um yeah thanks again for sharing all of that it's it's really really interesting and i'm sure there's you know i i can't say from my experience it's something that i've struggled with but i know from working with clients it is probably one like things like food guilt and binge eating behaviors is just it it's really common right okay so let's say we have a man who is struggling with like the relationship with nutrition and they come to you what would you do what would be the process of kind of taking them from where they're at to helping them improve their relationship with nutrition that's a good question and obviously there's massive um massive element of variety within all of that um in in the sense of a man's openness um, a man's urgency to to kind of gain some stability if I had a, a a man that was completely open, um, then what I would really look to delve into is to be like, okay, like I said, what have you learned? And I would really take them through a, a process of reflection of of just getting an understanding of who they are, who they think they are, um, and how they have basically got to where they're at. So just some key questions of understanding their ideas of of their the key pillars of of being a human essentially, which are love, belonging, and safety. And so like asking them like who like one of the common questions I'll ask is um if you had to define yourself as a as like a high school musical archetype in school, who who were you? And like, were you a jock? Were you a nerd? Were you a, um, yeah, were you a musician? Were you the baker, et cetera, et cetera? And that gives us, start to paint a picture of, like I say, these key pillars of how we formulated some sense of, of belonging. Like, for me, as an example, um, I was friends with everyone. I was the grey man. But what that says is that I'm just very good at being like, who do they need me to be? And how can I be that for them? And that meant that I was friends with everyone. But that actually then um, disconnects me from my own ability to... It, it teaches me that in order for me to be safe, I, am, I need to be in control. And so it perpetuates these controlling narratives. It, I would also explore elements of their... Just reflection of like... Generally, as children, we bias the love of a parent not the means that we love, we love a parent more. It's just that we will bias a love. And so it'll be like, okay, which parent was it? And, and who did you have to be for that? Like for me, because my dad wasn't there as much. It was for him. That was him. Doesn't mean I love my mum any less, but I would. And so who did I have to be? My dad had a high stress job, worked away a lot. And I found that if I just metaphorically stood in the corner, then he would love me and I'd be safe. And what we can then do is start to piece together like these ideas of um, our ability to generate love and safety for ourselves. Because when we think about binge eating as an example, there, it's a safety-seeking behavior. 
So we seek safety in that, in by binging. Because if we are unable to provide that so for example if i'm at a restaurant and i can't and i don't want to track or i can't track etc etc what we are then we can't be uncertain because uncertain means unsafe and within that there is um like if you think of paleolithic man walking through the woods he would require um he needs the story that the rustle in the bushes is the wind, but he also needs the story that um, it's a saber-toothed tiger that's going to take his life. And so uncertainty is means literal unsafety. So if we have this uncertainty around, is this nutrition going to take away from my goals? Is this, nutrition, is this meal out going to um, make me fat is this nutrient and we have these questions then the body will interpret that as being unsafe and so if we then go fuck it there are no rules on food then there are then we are safe in that moment and so once we get an idea of like those elements of our identity we can play into that and then we can combine that with some behaviors around food and so looking at our in the way in which we externally validate our decisions. And so that could be looking at the structures or rules that we have in place. Well, that could be some of the, the means in which we might track these foods. And how can we begin to start, start to um, loosen the reins so that we have a bit more uncertainty in the situation? So that could be an example of instead of generating a meal template where like I'm working with a client who has anorexia at the moment and for her, we needed to get her on quite a strict rigid structure. So she had a foundation of safety and to start to bring her body weight up. And now we've got her to a place of stability. It's then saying like, okay, can we expand that plan? And so that can, that can initially just be like, okay, well, can I then have the same breakfast uh, or similar breakfast and lunch or a controlled breakfast and lunch and start to then create some decision-making in a free template um, in their evening meal? So that could be, and the template could look like um, it has to be something that uh, meets a need of joy. It has to be something that that starts to talk about food in a more expansive way other than just this nutrient-centric idea of, of food. Um, or like one of a, a common one, if you've got someone who's just more disordered, then what I would just say is, right, your goal is to eat, pick a number of times a day, four times a day. There's no calorie goal, no macro goal, just eat four times a day. And the rule is that you can only have like one sitting. And so if I'm coming back from the gym and I just just oh, grab a banana and I just grab something and it like that's a feeding gone. But then similarly, if you're going to an all you can eat buffet, you got one sitting. If you want to take three plates to your table, then you can do that too. Um, and and it allows us to think in a, in a kind of a, pr a proactive approach saying like, what have I got over the next couple of hours? We begin, start to begin more mindful approaches to, to food and, and stuff like that.
Um, and there's there's all these little strategies, like if you look at research around people who have good long-term weight management, they have um, they will eat for a variety of different intentions. So they will eat for nourishment. I'm eating this because I want to train better tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then as well as that, I also will eat because I want to eat this apple pie because I want to reconnect to my childhood. I want to eat this because... Um, I want some comfort. I, w- I want to eat this because I want some joy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or I want to eat this because I'm going to set an example to my family. And the example that we're setting is that we eat health conscious behaviors. Or I'm eating this because we eat a balanced diet. You're like, you can interpret it however you want. But you'll know these people who seem to have a balanced relationship with food who will have, um, yeah, who will just eat because. And so even at a subconscious level, like if we were doing this, this experience would be made better if we were doing it over coffee. If we were sat face to face and we had a coffee, maybe even like a carrot cake. So I'm eating this to enhance the experience that I have with Chris today. And that's cool. And it allows you to be like, does what's the role of food in this experience in this moment? Is this experience with Chris and I, is this enhanced by food or no, actually there's enough, like there's a great amount of connection here and I don't need food and stuff like that. So we're thinking about like bringing in these principles of mindfulness, body attunement, um, eating intentions, uh, which all play into these ideas of internal validation to then start to expand these and challenge these rules on food. Uh, and we can do that through other means like exposure therapy. Like one of the things that I had to do, like I rec- <laughs> one of the, well, it's not something that I, I particularly boast about, but I used to polish like a box of crunchy nut cornflakes off a day. I think I literally would do seven boxes in a week at, at the height of it. And so part of that was to have some degree of exposure. Like I don't have the right to say no to crunchy nut cornflakes. Because how do you build a relationship with something? Like you build it through proximity. And if you look at the, um, like you don't date someone, marry someone like that you've never met unless you're going on a a TV program. Um, (laughs) And the most intimate relationships that you have facilitate a wide degree of needs, whether that's platonic or romantic. Like if you look at your romantic, you might go at like your uh, wife or someone, you go on a first date and you're like, they meet a need of fun. That's cool. And then you go on the second date and like, oh, that's quite adventurous as well. Like, I love that. And then you get to like the fourth date and you start to open up a bit more and they're like, oh, they meet a need of comfort too. And you can see how the healthiest relationships develop, meet a diversity of needs of intimacy, love, joy, connection, experience, and all the rest of it. And so beginning to have some exposure to those foods. So if there are, if we're picking apart working with a client and we're like, I fear having this in, well, what I would say is like, pick a controlled amount, chocolate. Okay, what you do not have the right to not say no to chocolate. Like have it, pick a controlled, have a bar, a set amount every day. And you know what? It might cause you on certain days to relapse. That's okay. But in the long term, like you're beginning to build these more mindful ex- mindful experiences around it. And then you can be like, okay, instead of the controlled bar, 
I'm going to then buy a big bar, but I'm going to weigh it out and I'm going to have 40 grams every time, every night again. And then once you get comfortable with that, then I say, I'm going to have chocolate every night, not 40 grams. And I'll have one square or I'll have two rows. Um, like whatever you want, have the whole fucking bar, like if you want it. Um, and then for, once that becomes there, then you can start deciding whether you have it or not. And then, no, don't really fancy it tonight. And that's cool too. And so there's all of these processes, strategies and interventions that are integral to bring in. But I think people think of it like a, a quick fix. And what you're, but what you're actually wanting to do is promote this almost like beginner's mindset. The reality is we're learning skills through this process. They don't feel like skills, but they are skills that will serve you for the rest of their life. Like people are like, what about my bigger body? What about my fat loss? Well, actually, I'm not anti-diet. I work in eating disorders. And yeah, a lot of the diet culture narrative is removed from that. I'm not inherently anti-diet. And I acknowledge that losing body fat can be a, a product of, of contributing to improved health. However, sometimes one of the most pro fat loss things you can do is look at the the the, the skills, the emotional skills that we're yeah. missing, yeah, and be and uh, being able to uh, implement those. But it's teaching people that, as I'm sure you're aware, is sure. the hard part. Yeah, I mean, this is probably one of the one of my biggest kind of frustrations in a way, I guess, with the fitness industry is often it's very. Like the the view is very external, so it, it's so much on like we're gonna get you to calorie track, we're gonna get you to exercise yeah. x amount of times per week, but in actual fact, the person doesn't have the ability to even do that because they've got so many things going on internally that complicate the situation. So quite often, my approach is right. I need to speak to this person first to get to understand where they're at do they actually have the ability to to do these things do they have the skills and knowledge and what barriers perhaps are going to crop up along the way more often than not we need to open up conversations with clients to really get to understand them and their emotions and the emotional driving forces and everything that contributes to then their behaviors because we can't address a behavior unless we address or initially understand that person one of the things that i i would speak to that with as well is this idea of like um particularly just um if i was when i've done some kind of um mentoring stuff with other um kind of personal trainers and nutritionists in uh, a space of disordered eating and just recognizing the red flags. One of the main messages that like people can communicate is the idea of just acknowledging some of the, the different games that you're playing in the sense of people view almost like health and their fitness pursuits as like this finite process. And, um, and actually they, and they will use all of their resources of time, energy, and money to achieve this, this goal in like 90 days or whatever. But actually, what about the rest of your life? You and I like could decide not to be health conscious tomorrow, but every decision still affects our health, regardless of whether we choose to play or not. And so it, health is not a game you win but yet we play it as if it is. We'll just throw all of these time, energy, money at it in, all, in a bid to kind of win. Where it's like, no, like 
what are you doing to show up again and again tomorrow? And Simon Sinek uses the example of the Vietnamese war in the sense of the Americans won something like 80% of the battles but lose the overall war. And how does that happen? It's because the Vietnamese were just playing to show up the next day. Like we have to have some resources in for the next day and the next day and the next day. So they saved their men, their artillery, whereas the Americans were just like, win the battle, win the battle. And they just ran out of resources. Mm. That's That's the truth of the matter. And so applying that mindset to our um, health endeavors, our health as a whole to be like, yeah, okay, I might need to put my strong urgency for fat loss, which I would question anyway, um, because what the because mo- most people put their lives on hold, just I will, when I am this, I will do this. And that's unhelpful. But people just putting your, maybe putting your fat loss endeavors on hold just to work on these these gaps like you've identified is one of the most pro like i say fat loss things that you can do in the long term anyway yeah for sure i love that that uh, the whole analogy of the american or vietnamese war that that's brilliant it really really does make sense in quite a powerful way so i was on instagram the other day and i'm sure i came across a post of you doing burpees for like five hours or something (laughs) something crazy i don't know why you would do that to yourself but then you were talking a little bit about like choosing discomfort and suffering i was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit about firstly why you would choose to do that to yourself and uh yeah discomfort and suffering i've done a number of kind of like physical endeavors over the years sometimes like from a healthy place and like the the five hours of burpees was actually a training session for 24 hours of burpees that i did um a couple of years ago where i did 10 10,687 and that's probably one of them where yeah obviously it was a very brutal process and um like i've done over a thousand burpees i think close to 60 times um and um within that that particular experience like i did what i would say is that i did and i did an iron man last year and that is a process that came from a place of love whereas the burpees came from a place of inadequacy okay i will be in if i achieve this i will be enough and what i was talking about and in particularly on social media is the dynamic between um suffering and discomfort and i think as men we're conditioned to suffer and i can suffer a lot like i can bury myself in holes like i can go to some dark dark places but the thing is like physically emotionally etc etc and but the endless pursuits of these kind of things tolerate narratives that you're almost like not enough as you are and you're not good enough. And I think one of the societal narratives around men is that we do just tolerate. My trigger is when people say it is what it is. Like, because you just, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And part of my own experience is learning to say no, like I don't have to suffer here. I've got another kind of like, I suppose, physical endeavor that I want to, I'm going to do at the end of the year. And it involves the kind of ultra mountains kind of things like that. And um, to be up a mountain the other day and like push, it was snowing heavily. It was on Snowden, it was snowing heavily. Winds were like 50 mile an hour. And just to go, no, I'm turning back. 
Whereas I have been on the top of Snowden with like 70 mile an hour winds and just pushing, pushing, pushing. And learning the dance between, okay, when is discomfort helpful? When is discomfort like, yeah, no, I'm showing my capability here. But I think one of the biggest things that particularly as men and like engaging in like a, a strong man is, um, is learning to say no. Discomfort is, a, um, is something that is really empowering, but suffering is also a choice. And there's a difference between kind of that ability to push yourself versus running from yourself. And an Ironman last year was pushing myself, learning a new skill, um, stepping outside of my comfort zone, exploring my relationship with exercise in so many ways. But then the burpees was running from myself. Okay. And so that's, that's the kind of the narrative. And again, it comes to things that we spoke about. What's the intention behind that? Um, and being completely transparent, like having done burpees for more than two and a half hours, multitude of times, like the amount of times I've got over four hours and then have like cried in the middle of, of sessions is just, um, yeah, it's just, is there's loads of times. Mm. Um, cause you're just in your head, you're like pushing and running and, and don't get me wrong. Like those experiences are really meaningful. I wouldn't change them. But now the biggest thing that I'm willing to do is, is just say no. That's amazing. I, I really, that was awesome. I mean, it's not something I've, if I'm honest, again, I've not really considered is, is that kind of the difference between choosing suffering, but also being okay with discomfort and finding that line. Um, but yeah, that's really insightful. So thanks for that. I'm asking all guests this question to kind of round off the interview. What nice. one word would you use to describe a strong man and why? Truthful. And the why is because when we talk about being truthful, we're talking about being truthful to ourselves. That I want you to exist in the truth of what it means to be a man for Chris, for no one else. And I want to exist in what it means to be a man for me, like not to, to ask for help in the ways in which I want to ask for help and not to ask for help in the ways I want to ask for help and not to be confined by these, um, these, these kind of societal narratives and to be like, if it, if it means, if being a man means that you want to, a strong man be, means that you want to dance and be creative, then that's the most masculine thing. And so it's just about allowing a strong man to stand in the truth of what it means to be a man for them and for no one else. Um, and so that's that's where I, I kind of come to. I don't want, like I say, I don't want, a strong man is not, confined by like you want to play chess like you want to do like a, like you say or similarly you want to back squat 250 kilos like have at it but as long as that is you in relation to who you are then for me like to see a man like 
standing the truth of of who he is is the for me the strongest thing no matter what it is and so yeah that's what i would say to that question love that love that shit that's amazing that is awesome and i'm sure people will uh will get a lot from that well calm thank you so much for your time i had said pre-interview we'd probably chat for about 40 minutes but we've blown way past that mark but that's absolutely fine it's been such a good conversation thanks so much for sharing your expertise and I'm in no doubt you're making a world of difference to not just people listening to this sort of stuff, but in your other work with clients and with athletes and with your online presence. Before we sign off, where can people find you? And if you want to say a little bit more about what you do, then yeah, the floor is yours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So people can find me on any social media platform. It's Callum with one L and Stronach is my handle for any any social media platform and then from there you can check out my website i support people to be honest i I show up in a a lens of food on social media but actually the reality is i just work in a tradition i have many clients that just work in a traditional therapeutic lens and so um so yeah it doesn't matter if your issue your say your mental health challenges might be around food or not um yeah i just help people um with their mental health so you are welcome to reach out in whatever ways and i do have a a podcast which i should probably plug called uh, the not all men podcast which is about kind of holding up a mirror to masculinity as a whole and exploring different um conversations around sex relationships and health and all of these kind of stuff in kind of redefining elements of masculinity amazing amazing it's so good to see people like yourself doing podcasts like that because you know as a as this podcast is exactly the same trying to break down the stigma that so often exists calm once again thanks so much for your time there was so much more that i could have asked you so i may well ask you back on the show at some point in the future but yes thanks so much for your time today no it's a privilege thank you for having me Okay, I was about to say ladies and gents, but uh, primarily gents, we are now moving on to the next section of the episode, which is, of course, the brain break. This is the segment of the show that's designed to give your brain a break rather than break your brain, because at the end of the day, we've been covering some heavy-ass topics, and it's about time that we give our brain some respite. Before we get to some listener correspondence, I just want to take a quick moment to reflect on just how good that interview was with Callum. He is incredibly smart and is doing such an amazing work. I would really love to know your feedback on the interview with Callum. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts, then please do at tsm at thewellbeingpt.com. I received a couple of emails this week. Firstly, David got in touch to say, Hi Chris, really well done podcast. As a former radio presenter and producer, I thought you did a great job on the podcast. I trained as a CBT therapist late in life and have an active interest in psychological well-being. Unfortunately, a lot of my pals have mental health issues, so this is a very worthwhile project and I wish you the best for the future of your podcasting journey. I taught meditation for many years at a Theosophical Society and put my own tightrope of mental health down to the practice of meditating. 
yes, exercise. At 65, I need to get back to doing some weights and exercise bike. Thanks very much, David, for your encouragement and ongoing support. I really appreciate the fact you thought I did a good job on the podcast, especially as you are a, a former radio presenter and producer. I must be doing something right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, f- I do feel very much out of my comfort zone here, and this is all brand new to me, so that is very much encouraging. Also, meditation is a very interesting topic and certainly something we will be talking about more in coming episodes. So yes, thank you very much for getting in touch this week. Also, Mike... My younger brother got in touch because I uh, I forgot his name last week on the episode. Yes, if you want to know more, make sure you go and listen to the previous episode. Sorry for that, Mike. He says, congrats on the podcast. I made it, it, it made the time on a rather choppy ferry journey across the Minch fly last weekend. I'd actually just been in Wick for a badminton tournament, so I echo your sentiments 100%. Out with of forgetting my name, I really enjoyed your first podcast and thanks for speaking so openly, as usual, through some tough topics and sharing your own story. I'm with you to an extent on Friends, although some of it can be quite funny. I think I'd have to say The Office UK is totally overrated. Never found it funny at all. The Office US, on the other hand, unreal. I have to agree with you there, Mike. Absolutely. Michael Scott is one of the best, if not the best characters of all time. And if you disagree, you can fight me. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Mike. Thanks very much for getting in touch with the show and for weighing in on last week's Brain Break, which was the most overrated shows. We did get another couple of suggestions when it comes to overrated TV shows. The first was The Big Bang Theory. And if you've not seen this, I highly recommend you do so because I used to think the show was quite funny until I went on YouTube and watched The Big Bang Theory without the laugh track. And it's not funny. It's amazing what a laugh track can actually do and make you kind of deceive you to believe that a show is funny. So, yep, thanks for that, Colin. Once again, I would agree. Not funny. Massively overrated. And the other one was ML got in touch to say... Pointless. Pointless is pointless. Now, I'm not so sure about this one. I quite like Pointless. And the the most amazing thing that I found out recently is that you can actually play Pointless on Alexa. And if you don't believe me, ask Alexa to play Pointless and she'll get Alexander Armstrong in your living room. It's amazing. It's really, it's quite fun. It's quite fun. The most frustrating thing though is because I'm Scottish, Alexa doesn't really understand what I'm saying half the time. But if you can get it to work, you know, when you're participating, it's quite fun. Maybe watching it's less fun, perhaps. I'm not sure. But I th- I feel like there's worse shows out there. Lastly, and I should perhaps have started this segment with it, I need to apologise. Because last week I did a really shoddy impression of an American saying soccer. And in doing so, I then, well, actually, there's more to it. I then also said that we say football because we're normal, so therefore insinuated that American people weren't normal. Now, that was really hurtful. I hold my hands up. It it wasn't what I'd intended to say. I uh, hadn't scripted it, and it does not reflect my view of the American people. So do, please, hum- accept my humble apology, and I promise I will do better. Not only did I attack 
the way Americans speak. But I also then went on to attack an American institution in Friends. So once again, well, actually, no, I don't make any apologies for that. I, I really don't like Friends still. You can't convince me otherwise. Anthony got in touch, who, Anthony, who is an American, to uh, highlight the fact that I've done these things. So I do apologise to Anthony and the American people and suggested that I should change the name of the podcast from the Strongmen podcast to the American Hating Podcast. So I will take that feedback on board and consider it. It's certainly not the direction that I hoped the podcast would go, but I mean, if that's what the masses want, then that's what the masses want. So what can you do? I did have a few other people pass on some feedback after that first episode, so thanks to every single one of you who contributed, and please do keep it coming as we continue through this series. This week on The Brain Break, I'm introducing a new topic, and this comes off the back of an incident that occurred to me last Tuesday in the gym. Now, I have been a PT for six years, and nothing like this has ever happened to me up to this point. I do partly think that it's to do with getting older and yes I know I go on about turning 30 this year a lot but it's a sore spot and I need to talk about it a lot (laughs) to help me process it. But basically I was in the gym last Tuesday with a client and we were running through some strength assessments as I often do just to make sure things are moving in the right direction to help the client see their progress and just gauge how much stronger they're getting from training program to training program. And we were running through the deadlift, my favorite exercise of all. The client finished their set and it was quite comfortable. So therefore we were going to have to put on more weight. Yes, excellent. In the process, however, of getting more weight off the squat rack to then put on the bar, I managed to deck it. I stepped over the bar from the side, I caught my right foot on the weight plate and went down in stages, is the best way I can describe it. It was really sore because I smacked my hand off the squat rack in the process, but my ego was bruised most, no doubt. No doubt at all. It was a very busy night in the gym. It was peak time, 6.30ish. The gym was heaving and obviously as soon as you fall over and make a big ruckus, every single pair of eyes is on you. And there I was, lying flat on my back on the gym floor with everyone looking at me. I mean, if it was somebody else falling over and I was like a gym goer who was witnessing it, there's no doubt I would have been killing myself laughing. Internally, obviously, I wouldn't want to do that and make them feel bad or upset. But... People falling over is always very funny, isn't it? As long as it's not you. So this is inspired this week's Brain Break. I want to hear from you. What is your most embarrassing gym story, if you have one? If you don't have a gym story, a gym-based story, it can be anything. What is your most embarrassing story? If you really want to divulge that information and embarrass yourself on the Strongman podcast. I can keep your name anonymous if you'd rather not have it, your name associated with an embarrassing story. But I would love to hear from you. Please do give me all the juicy details. And I'm looking forward to reading through some of these because it'll make me feel a little bit better about falling over last week. 
So, yeah, please do send it in. You're helping a man out. That's just beyond the hour mark, so I'm going to wrap things up. But before I do that, I just wanted to briefly talk about the Strongmen group. This is a group that's currently set up in Edinburgh, and it's a group that's designed to help men improve both their physical and mental strength. And we do this through three monthly events. Every month we've got these three. So we have a social, we have a gym-based event, and then we have a self-development event also. And on Monday we had Thrive, which is this self-development session, which was brilliant. It was really good to have the guys jump on a call and just chat through barriers. So we're talking about what gets in the way for the guys when it comes to trying to improve their health and fitness, both physically and mentally. We had a really good discussion. This week we've got a social coming up so on Thursday we'll be heading to a pool hall to play some pool get some practice in channel our inner Ronnie O'Sullivan's and then the final Saturday of this month we'll have our build session which is the session in the gym where we're working on developing our confidence and physical strength in that gym environment if you want to be a part of the strong men you can join still please do just get in touch you can either do that by messaging me directly on social media at the Wellbeing PT, or you can email me tsm at thewellbeingpt.com. And that is us. That is the end of the episode. Thank you so much for joining me once again. I trust that you enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, take good care of yourself.